Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. Almost everyone says they appreciate beauty. And while beauty is to some degree in the eye of the beholder, there are certain near-universal benchmarks for beauty that set the standard for everything else. For example, what do American tourists see when they go to Europe? In Rome, no one would miss Michelangelo's Pietà at St. Peter's Basilica, or his paintings in the Sistine Chapel in Rome. In Paris, everyone admires the Sainte-Chapelle, and most of all, the Cathedral of Notre Dame which the whole world was relieved to see spared from total destruction after a devastating fire in 2019. In London, we ignore the new towers of glass and steel in favor of old architectural masterpieces in Westminster Abbey and St. Paul's Cathedral. And yet, in most of our lives, we settle for ugliness, or at least mediocrity. How many of us work in bland offices with the same neutral carpet, paint, ceiling tiles, and windows that don't even open? Where I live in the American suburbs, going out to eat in a restaurant almost inevitably means sitting within sight of multiple television screens, all broadcasting irrelevant inanities. Likewise, going to the gym to make one's body healthier and more beautiful inevitably includes being bombarded with a small rotating sample of the most annoying top 40 songs against the backdrop of more industrial carpet, paint, tile, and windows. The late English philosopher Sir Roger Scruton summed up our inelegant, even anti-beautiful experience of life today with the phrase, the tyranny of pop. Mercifully, the rediscovery of an everyday lived experience of beauty has become a talking point among some Christian evangelists. Truth, beauty, and goodness, they remind us, are inextricably linked as transcendental values. And in an age where truth is relative and goodness is twisted to mean its opposite, beauty may be the most reliable vehicle for conveying to others our faith in a loving creator. But we have a long way to go. Most of us are in no position to build a new Notre Dame, or even choose to spend much time at all inside of one. So, what can we do to live beautifully, as witnesses to Christ, the Beautiful One? My guest today, Jimmy Mitchell, offers a variety of helpful ideas in his new book from Ignatius Press titled, Let Beauty Speak, The Art of Being Human in a Culture of Noise. Jimmy writes in the introduction, You have in your hands the battle cry of every Christian who seeks to be fully human and fully alive, who wants to engage and redeem the world rather than run away from it. This approach to evangelization is less about techniques and more about lifestyle. It's an art, not a science, inspiring you to live your humanity so well that you can't help but point others to the divine. A tall task, but Jimmy writes with confidence and apostolic zeal, describing some of his own beautiful life experiences and attaching them to loaded words like wonder, leisure, culture, and many others, encouraging us ultimately to live beautifully too. Jimmy Mitchell is the founder of Love Good, a formation platform that seeks to build a culture of conversion within families, parishes, schools, and organizations. He is the Director of Campus Ministry at Jesuit High School in Tampa, Florida, and I am delighted to welcome Jimmy to the podcast. 
Jimmy Mitchell, welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. How are you? Thanks so much, Andrew. I'm doing great. It's awesome to be with you. Jimmy, you have come out with a, a really uh, interesting and important book, also a very accessible book that I really hope a lot of people just get into their hands and uh, and begin to, to, to get into. And uh, the book is called Let Beauty Speak, The Art of Being Human in a Culture of Noise. I have to say, when I was sent your book and I saw the title, I couldn't find a single word in the title that didn't resonate with me. I just, you really are kind of hitting all the right notes. And, um, you know, you are joining a, a chorus of voices in the kind of Catholic evangelism space who are really focusing nowadays on the concept of beauty, on, on the value of beauty as um, an evangelism tool, for sure, but also what you've done is not just focus on the aesthetics, but also kind of invite us into the art of living. Um, and so, you know, something that really struck me is you, you, you made this, um, this, this great claim here in the introduction where you said, every encounter with beauty is a foretaste of heaven, which is just wonderful, a wonderful thought. And then you contrast this like heavenly beauty with what you've called a culture of noise, which you attach to the idea of uh, the, the dictatorship of relativism. So when did this begin to occur to you that, that we're living in this like noisy world, this world that kind of wants to push out or block beauty and therefore kind of block our encounter with the living God? Where, where, did, the, where did this all come from for you? I think what's crazy is when we stop and think about even how recent something like the smartphone really is. I mean, that was only 16 years ago. Uh, but I would say, you know, our culture of noise, it, it began long before that. Uh, and it's not just a problem with technology or a problem with media. Uh, it's really a problem with our interior life or lack thereof. I think the more we've kind of fallen into this idea, whether it's in our personal devotion or in our work of evangelization, uh, that who we are as Catholics and who we are uh, as evangelists is primarily about what we do. Uh, as soon as we got into that mindset, uh, I think we... Uh, can kind of begin to trace much of the, the, the troubles of our age. And I think, you know, this book, uh, alongside, as you put it, a course of, of like-minded books, you know, I'm thinking of Cardinal Seurat's The Dictatorship of Noise um, and uh, The Power of Silence, you know, against the dictatorship of noise. I'm thinking about even the recent book by Dr. Edward Sree, you know, The Art of Living. Uh, there's a lot of people, I think, who recognize that there's a great need right now um, to start to live differently. There's an existential ache that seems to be on the rise. And I see this, especially in my work with young people, you know, that the culture has presented to them a, a way of life that isn't satisfying. It's not fulfilling uh, the, the deepest desires of their soul. And they don't have language for that in most cases, but they have a deep uh, instinct that something is not right. Things are not the way they, that they should be. And while they might not be quick to engage with a discussion about truth or morality, uh, they're very happy uh, to encounter beauty and stand in awe and reclaim some of that childlike innocence that I think all of us long for as life really begins to unfold. Yeah. And as you talk about in a couple of different places in the book, one of the things that seem, one of the challenges that we face really is, is helping people clear out all the, all the clutter, you know, because although we have this like innate desire that we have this longing that we know as Catholics, as Christians, that, you know, that only God himself can, can fill, right? There's just so much coming at us at all times. You mentioned in, in your book, Shoshana Zuboff and her work on, um, you know, just what social media is doing to our, not only to our brains, but to our souls and therefore to our whole culture. And it was interesting when you mentioned the smartphone a moment ago, because one of the key images that sticks in my mind is contrasting what it looked like in St. Peter's Square when Pope Benedict was elected in 2004 or two, well, 2005, sorry. And then when Pope Francis was elected just, just less than 10 years later in 2013. In the first picture, everyone's just looking up, looking, looking at the balcony. In the second picture, every single person has a phone, every single one. And so it just sort of goes to show you that even in this space where we're like in a beautiful space, where we're taking our faith seriously, we're just so bombarded, right? There's just so many distractions and so many things, which is why I thought it was really wonderful then that as you transition into the meat of your book and your book is organized according to these, these key words. And I just love to kind of have you talk about most of them if you could, but the first one you start with is wonder. And that was such a wonderful and refreshing place to start, especially because your book is so full of 
your own really exciting adventure stories, which I have to say evoked in me a real sense of wonder just just reading your stories. So, you know, talk to us about about just why you started with wonder and and why that's the best like jumping off point. Well, much as you hinted at just a couple minutes ago, we've lost our sense of wonder, you know, in this culture of noise. And it is the best place to start because, again, nobody can really argue with the, uh, you know, the, 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 the joy of standing in awe, you know, that, that experience of, of encountering beauty that leaves us speechless. You know, I, I've yet to meet anybody who doesn't marvel you know, and, and kind of find themselves at a loss for words when they're holding a newborn child in their arms, when they're standing, you know, atop a mountain range, when they're looking at a, a beautiful sunset. You know, it's one of the joys of living in Florida just these last three years. There's a lot of beauty around me, especially, you know, on sort of the, 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 the level of God's creation. It's, it's everywhere. And um, there's something, I think, deep in the human heart that, that needs wonder, that longs for wonder. It's the only real way uh, to uh, even b- begin to talk about knowledge and eventually love. I mean, it's kind of a Dominican motto, sort of a Thomistic principle, but, you know, wonder leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to love. So right now, you know, I would argue that beauty leads to truth and, and truth ultimately gives rise to, to goodness. Um, and then it sort of has this way of then inspiring people yet again with, with the beauty of, of, of a life well lived. So it's kind of this beautiful uh, sort of uh, interdependent sort of cycle through the transcendentals. Uh, the question is, what, what kind of time are we living in? We're not living in a time that is full of logic, uh, that is hungry for rational debate. We're living in a time that's literally lost its mind. So how do we cut through all of that noise? Uh, how do we even begin to sort of break through some of that, you know, relativism? Uh, I think the answer is beauty, and that begins with wonder. Yeah, and you tie wonder to humility and to silence as well, um, which connects back up with what we were saying before that, I mean, even to stand in the face of something, just what we might even call objectively beautiful, you have to be paying attention. And sadly, I mean, there is a lot of beauty in the world, but people are kind of looking down instead of up, or they're looking, you know, contemplating their own, you know, inanities or whatever, rather than something that is just, you know, that could really shake them to their bones. Right. Um, so I just love that, that you really emphasize that humility and silence right on the, on, on the, on the front side and then connected to that. And maybe you can say more about the humility and silence. Your next word is freedom. And that is a word that I think is, is either much misunderstood or has been contorted or whatever it may be. But, um, how to your mind, as you're putting this in the context of beauty, how would you say the world for the most part thinks of the word freedom and how, how should we as Catholics, and particularly as Catholics who are trying to appreciate beauty and use that as the way into goodness and truth? Mm. It's a wonderful question. I think most of us do have this idea, especially in America, yet freedom is the same thing as license, you know, to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want. Well, that form of, of, of liberty, if you can even call it that, um, you can certainly call it license. If it's not um, at a certain point, you know, uh, infused with truth and what it means to be human and how to live a a virtuous and good and happy life, then it quickly devolves into licentiousness. I mean, that's, that's the reality is, you know, this kind of um, hollowed out version of, of freedom that we'll call license um, is just one step away from the, the the moral, you know, anarchy of, of our times, the, the licentiousness that, I think most of us can, you know, see pretty clearly all around us, but there's no joy in that kind of, um, you know, um, sort of live and let live uh, wild and free uh, mentality, uh, unexamined life. There's no fulfillment in that. So again, this is the opportunity. You know, I work with young people a lot and I was just at a family's home for dinner a couple of nights ago. And there was about five or six high school age young men, um, you know, uh, with the parents and we're, you know, eating tacos. It was a Tuesday and we went outside after dinner just to sort of catch up on life, talk about, you know, um, you know, joys and struggles in their prayer and in their pursuit of virtue. They're at the beginning of summertime and it's an easy time to let themselves go in a way that's not uh, necessarily going to glorify God. And so we're having this beautiful conversation and all of them, like most high schoolers, um, struggle with partying. They struggle with much of the licentiousness that we're talking about right now. 
but they have this desire for more. And they've recognized, particularly, you know, on retreats or on some of our pilgrimages abroad, you know, uh, that they've been a part of. I, I work at an all boys high school down here in Tampa. And, you know, we provide a lot of amazing opportunities for these young men to stand in awe, to grow in virtue, to really cultivate that interior freedom we're talking about. Well, all of them in their own way were able to put this into words that uh, the pleasure that they might experience, you know, uh, in, in a party. Um, or uh, in any kind of sin of the flesh, doesn't even come close to the joy and the fulfillment that they have encountered in the Lord, in those profound encounters with him, particularly through beauty. And what I love is uh, these are just like average high school guys who play sports and are probably going to you know, be off in college next year and maybe even thinking about joining fraternities and just kind of living this kind of typical American life. But all of them are now really for the first time questioning um, what the world is all about and the, the emptiness that much of the world's pleasures and promises have left them with. And uh, you see in them this, this existential uh, ache, this desire for more. And again, beauty has been the cause for that ache. And I think it, it leads to this desire for a deeper freedom, which ultimately will allow them to, to, to choose the highest good in their life, who is, of course, God himself. Yeah, I like how you use that term existential ache, Jimmy, because, you know, you do reach a point in your life and it's probably around the age of the young men that you're that you're tutoring and teaching and, and mentoring where you, you look out on the world and you think I can do so many things I can I can even though people are telling me not to I could do it, you know, or and then, you know, you get to a place where people aren't telling you not to do it and then you do it all the more. But then you reach this place where you're like, but what am I free for? Like, I'm free to do these things, but it's not bringing me fulfillment. And, you know, sadly, we live in a culture that doesn't have all these guardrails all around anymore that says, ah, well, we know that feeling. Let us let us bring you back in, you know. So I think it's so refreshing to, you know, to, to be able to, to serve the church in a way and for you to have this book um, and to be able to kind of um, invite people to, to, to remember that, to remember that we're free you know, we're free to do all kinds of things, but ultimately what are we free for, but something far greater than just our base desires, right? That's right. And I think one of the reasons that I have really enjoyed, you know, uh, writing this book and ultimately, you know, being able to engage in a lot of conversations about it like this is it's easy to kind of leave, you know, beauty at arm's length as kind of this philosophical idea or this noble sort of pursuit. Um, but the reality is, beauty can really become incarnate in our lives. And I think in a very real way, uh, you don't have to be creative. You don't have to be artistic uh, to appreciate the power of beauty. And I think for those who don't really even care all that much, maybe about music, art, and architecture, all of them, uh, all of us for that matter on planet earth, um, have a hard time arguing with, you know, what we would call the beauty of holiness, but just the beauty of a life well lived. You know, Mother Teresa being sort of a, a classic modern example of this, um, everybody was compelled by her witness. Everybody was sort of left with a, a bit of a gut check, you know, uh, whenever they were around her. And I think that's, again, kind of the, the, the call to arms that this book is, uh, which is for all of us to go and be saints, to, to live lives of, of great beauty and great holiness that our world is just hungry for right now. Mother Teresa seems like such a great example to me because there's nothing about her ministry that is beautiful in some respects, right? But an image of Mother Teresa hugging a, you know, a horribly disabled, you know, a homeless person in India is just about the most beautiful image we could imagine, isn't it? You know, it's mm. just, the, it's that lived beauty, which um, you're right. I think it, it, we need to hear more about that. And uh, I mean, I'm all for, you know, advocating for people to listen to more Bach and and uh, and look at, you know, more beautiful paintings and that sort of thing. But um, there's more than just kind of the art or the aesthetic side. There's actually the lived part. And that brings us to um, the next word, which I really enjoyed uh, reading about which is friendship. Mm. Now, reading your book, you seem like you're somebody, Jimmy, who is a good friend. You know, you, every every chapter has stories about this friend or that friend or that group of friends. And I really, I really appreciated that. I actually took it as a little bit of a, a little bit of a challenge um, for this reason. You know, I've heard it said that, you know, you can either be good at your job, you can be, you have to pick two, good at your job, good at your family, good at friendships. 
And I have to admit, in my life, I have I have struggled to to cultivate good friendships or to maintain them. And especially of that variety that you advocate in your chapter, that the Aristotelian friendship of excellence, that 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 friendship of virtue. So tell us more about just your own experience of of edifying friendship, and and maybe just you know flesh that out a little bit more for us. It really has been the greatest joy of my life, uh, apart from the interior life. Uh, the greatest joy has always been uh, my friends, and you know part of I think the reason I've had. Uh, an opportunity or an ability to cultivate friendship is because I'm not yet in my vocation. So to put your mind at ease, Andrew, it might actually come, there might come a day for me as well, where you just realize you can't do it all as well as you want, you know, but I think especially for those who are single, they have a, not only an opportunity, but I'd say a responsibility to cultivate the art of friendship. And I would even say the apostolate of friendship. And I'm thinking immediately of um, what many of my Baptist friends taught me when I was at Vanderbilt university as an undergrad, these were men who loved Jesus Christ. I mean, above all else. And their witness uh, of faith and of prayer and of love for the scriptures, um, even their love for just a good, decent, wholesome, moral life was so inspiring that it left me utterly changed. And one of my very best friends in college, who was a Baptist at the time, he actually started a Christian fraternity that I would say taught me for the first time in my life what this friendship of excellence or this friendship of virtue really looks like. Because part of being in that fraternity was getting together with a, a small group of guys every single week to dive into really the joys and the struggles of faith. And, you know, when you're in college, that is also trying to navigate the, the sins of the flesh that are all around you and obviously trying to avoid the near occasion of sin, but also grow in your love for the Lord. And these men really taught me what it means to live Christ-centered friendship, virtue-driven friendship. And what's crazy is uh, several years later, this friend that I was referencing, um, who was, was a Baptist, who started this Christian fraternity, who very much recruited me to join this fraternity. While he was in law school, he became an Anglican. Uh, we continued to stay in very good touch, um, but it wasn't long after law school that he just had this like growing urge to really study church fathers and to explore sort of the, 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 the fullness of our Catholic faith and everything that that entails, especially beautiful liturgy, actually. And so one day he just sort of swapped his book of common prayer out for the liturgy of the hours. And the next day, you know, he's starting to go to Sunday mass at the Catholic parish where he was living in Birmingham. And, you know, a few months into this, as he was realizing what was happening, he calls me up. And we just got into this hour, hour and a half long conversation. I'll never forget where I was. I was uh, right outside of a friend's house where there was just a little bit of cell phone service because I was in the North Georgia mountains that day. And I was just hanging at this uh, you know, intersection, knowing that if I went past this intersection, I would lose cell phone service and I would kind of have to you know, interrupt this beautiful conversation from my friend who had gone from being a Baptist to an Anglican to now saying, Jimmy, I, I think I'd really like to become Catholic. I don't even know where to begin with that. Can you help me find a priest or a program or whatever it takes? So I had to introduce him to this idea of RCIA and eventually a priest who uh, is an amazing diocesan priest back in Nashville, but formerly a lawyer. They had a ton in common. This priest was also a convert. And before I knew it, this buddy of mine uh, who had kind of made, we'll say, an evangelical out of me, you know, certainly uh, never left the Catholic faith by the grace of God, but through him and through his witness became a very sincere disciple and ultimately evangelist. Like I just, I wanted to, to love Christ as he did and share the love of Christ with others as he did. And ultimately, you know, um, I'm now the one, you know, kind of doing the, the, the traveling and the speaking and the missionary work. Uh, he is not only a Catholic, uh, but now um, well on his way to becoming a priest. He's a transitional deacon. And I, I referenced this story in the book. I'm giving sort of a longer version of it right now. But that is what friendship is meant to be, is, is a banding together in pursuit of what is true, good, and beautiful, and a real uh, storming of heaven together so that we could become saints together. And uh, my friend that I've been referencing in this story is, is a perfect example of that. And I could probably tell, I don't know, another 20 or 30 stories without much thought that are very similar to that. And I'm so grateful because if it wasn't for St. Jose Maria Escriva and his understanding of the apostolate of friendship, if it wasn't for, you know, some of the great saints, you know, through the, through the history of the church, like Ignatius and, you know, uh, Francis Xavier and Peter Faber, or, 
you know, you look back uh, at, you know, St. John Bosco, who was clearly, you know, mentoring and befriending people like Dominic Savio and Miguel Rua. Uh, if it wasn't for the witness of great saints who have been friends together in human history, I'm not sure that idea would sit as deeply as it does with me now. I, I really appreciate all of that. And I, I love how you also, you clearly uh, value spending physical time together with friends. You, you've, you've told a, a story there that featured some phone conversations and that kind of thing. But but really that the incarnate nature of friendship is so important. And that maybe is the thing that I find the, the biggest struggle. Like I've got, a, I've got several text groups. I've got, you know, all the, all these ways that I'm connected and I, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. So grateful, but being able to like really be together with brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ and like really being able to kind of have that experience of, of mutual encouragement in the flesh is super important. Um, let's transition to prayer, which is at the center, the center of your book. Um, prayer is one of those, one of those things that is, um, you know, we talk a lot about prayer, even non-Christians, non-praying people talk a lot about prayer. And in, in a way, when we break it down practically, it's one of those kind of, you know, sort of incredible time wasters in a, in a manner of speaking. Right. Um, and yet it really is the crux of it all. It's, it's really the, 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 the still point around which all the rest of this beauty that you're describing, uh, has to stand. So, uh, tell us about prayer and the beauty of it, your prayer practices, what you, you know, your experiences of prayer as a, as kind of an element of beauty in your life. You know, one of the reasons that prayer follows friendship is obviously there's no higher friend, no uh, greater friendship any of us could cultivate than the one with God himself. You know, he comes and he, he dares to dwell among us and he calls us not slaves, not servants, but friends. And there's something just gripping about that when you really think, OK, the God of the universe, the one who created the heavens and the earth, who also redeemed all of mankind. He's my friend. He calls me, he dares to call me friend. And that in and of itself is, is a mystery worthy of, of, a, of lifelong contemplation. And really, you go one step further with it. You know, it's not only that we are friends in the Lord. We are sons and daughters of, of God the Father, which really just gets to the core of our identity. And, you know, it's been, I would say, 15 years, maybe close to 20 now, a very consistent daily prayer that has totally shaped my life. It's been a foundation of all of my joy. It's also been the reason for any degree of confidence I've ever had in doing the work that I do and uh, finding the Lord's will and ultimately having a great peace in doing his will, you know, to kind of borrow the phrase of, 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 of Dante, you know, in la sua volontà e nostra pace, Lord, in your will is our peace. Um, I have found that time and time again, but I can't know his will much less have the strength to pursue it without prayer. And I certainly can't live in the joy of my beloved sonship and of my salvation in the Lord without prayer either. So the non-negotiables for me for a long time have been daily mass, daily rosary, uh, always at least half an hour of mental prayer on top of that. There's been seasons in my life where I've been able to pull off a holy hour um, every day, but right now half an hour in prayer, personal mental prayer has been uh, a definite, um, you know, bulwark of, of my day and, and of my sense of peace and purpose. You know, it's uh, several times quoted in the book, just the importance of mental prayer from the perspective of great saints and mystics. You know, it's Teresa of Avila says, you know, um, if a man does not practice mental prayer for at least 15 minutes a day, he won't need a devil to throw him into hell. He will throw himself in, you know, to put it more positively, St. Alphonse de Liguri says, uh, you know, basically uh, all the saints became saints by way of mental prayer. Uh, and what is it? It's this conversation with God, this loving dialogue with God as a friend or as a father. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of where things get raw and things get real. And for me, you know, that involves quite a bit of what I call spiritual journaling because I'm very easily distracted and I can get lost in my thoughts. And what I think is mental prayer can very quickly devolve into me just talking to myself or thinking to myself uh, while sitting still in front of the Blessed Sacrament. So writing down what I'm saying to God in prayer helps, keeps me focused. It slows me down, but it also creates a space for me to basically listen and write down, um, you know, what I hear the Lord saying in response, which doesn't mean that I'm hearing a voice out of the clouds. Uh, it means that I'm, I'm getting a sense of how the Lord is responding to me. And usually that sense is inspired by scriptures. So I've always got a Bible by my side 
during these times of mental prayer. And usually I'll be kind of drawn to a particular passage that I've read recently or I've read even years ago. And that'll kind of be the Lord's response to whatever's bothering me, whatever's troubling me, whatever's uh, causing great joy and consolation in my soul, whatever it is that I've written down, the Lord's response is almost always inspired uh, by scripture. And there's so many ways to do this. And I think that the devotional life of, uh, of many of the saints is, is clear and on full display. But one of the things we just don't talk enough about is this mental prayer. So I'm real fired up about it right now because I'm also watching it transform the lives of a lot of young people around me who, who never really moved past their daily rote routine memorized prayers, which for many Catholics is going to always be sort of at the foundation because as kids, that's about, you know, what, what most of us can, can do. Uh, certainly what we're taught, it's the easiest thing to pass along to the next generation. But again, I think mental prayer is really the, the silver bullet of, of, you know, living a happy life, living a, a, a joy-filled life, um, and really the kind of life that God is calling all of us to. That's really interesting, Jimmy. You know, for me, as a, somebody who was raised Protestant, who was raised evangelical and then Anglican and then Catholic, um, you know, I was raised kind of with the, with the idea that the, 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 the only authentic prayer is the kind of the mental prayer, is the spontaneous prayer, is the, you know, this sort of, you know, this, this one-on-one dialogue type of thing. And, and it's, that's remained with me always, all, all through these years. And also, since becoming Catholic, you know, it's actually the rote prayers. And, you know, you mentioned praying the rosary. I mean, it's for me, things like praying the rosary, praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet, that actually, and I think that you would agree with this, I'm not contradicting you, but, you know, but that then really opens up for me again, this, uh, this like more free flowing mental prayer that I'm able to, that I'm able to experience. So, you know, I'm just so grateful for the breadth of our, of our prayer tradition um, that we get to experience as Catholics. It's a great point. It's a little bit like breathing with both lungs. Cause there's some days where, I mean, you're just doing good to thumb through your beads and, and get a rosary, you know, from, from start to finish before you're just, you know, exhausted and laying in bed. Uh, but it's also really cool the way that liturgical prayer, devotional prayer can bring us together. You know, I was just recently at a family's house and we were wrapping up a late lunch and it was three o'clock. And I don't know why it just really occurred to me that, hey, they'd probably be pretty open to this. Why don't we pray Divine Mercy Chaplet? I suggested it. None of them had ever heard of it before. And it took all of seven minutes to pray. And it meant a lot to them. It meant a lot to me. Um, but more than that, it brought grace into our soul. It brought grace into our conversation and our friendship in that moment. And uh, it really is uh, simple. And I think that's part of the, the, the genius of Catholic spirituality is that there's a wide breadth uh, of, of possibilities and obviously uh, endless depth as well. Yeah. Jimmy, let's talk about uh, leisure and work. I found the two chapters, uh, the chapters on leisure and work to be some of the most interesting of, of the 10. Um, you make the claim here, uh, we work for the sake of rest, not the other way around. And uh, I love that sentiment. Uh, I'm somebody who enjoys uh, drinking a, a nice bottle of wine and, uh, you know, just um, trying to trying to cultivate certain, you know, uh, enjoyable practices in life. And it's it's a relief to me to kind of, you know, to to experience those things as uh, not not guilty pleasures, but uh, but things to be, you know, th- that are that are perfectly reasonable goals of 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 life that really God wants these things for us. And then connected to that is work. And maybe you can kind of talk about both of these in, in the same breath. But, you know, it really occurred to me when I was reading your chapter about work that Work is one of those areas where I would say most people nowadays experience the most ugliness. Mm. Um, that may be that they just, you know, every office kind of looks the same. It has the same drab carpet, paint color, ceiling tiles, hermetically sealed windows. You know, they sit at these computers and what are they really doing? I mean, I, I don't want to demean the work that they're doing. I'm sure maybe what, what needs to happen there is is finding that, finding that that purpose in it, Right. Um, but I, I just was really encouraged by your your chapter about work to kind of really to look for the way in which work can be sanctified and um, and look for places maybe, you know, maybe to do work that is more sanctifying than what is just kind of readily available from uh, a lot of nine to five jobs. So I'd just love to hear your expansion of, of where all this comes from for you, the, le- the leisure and work chapters. Mm, I think it's a really good insight on your part that, you know, a lot of work does uh, actually feel quite drab and even dehumanizing to people. 
So I have to like first acknowledge the fact that, you know, not everybody uh, has the same ease of opportunity to encounter beauty in their work. So that that's worth uh, throwing out there. But the reality is all of us are called to work. I mean, I'm going to start there, even though they, they actually, uh, in the book, these principles appear in, in the opposite order. I, I found leisure to be more primary, more primordial, you know, so I, I wanted to put it first, but it's easier to talk about work because it's such a part of our lives and a significant, you know, eight to 10 hour chunk of our day, five days a week, you know, um, but I used to be an entrepreneur. So it was, it was never ending. There was always more to be done. And what I found is, you know, particularly in understanding the dignity of work, the nobility of work, uh, but also the sanctity in work, um, it can become something quite beautiful. You know, um, my mind goes to, you know, young Carol Votiwa, who, of course, went on to become Pope St. John Paul II. And this, the time that he spent in the rock quarry um, outside of, of Krakow as a young man, when he was actually already a clandestine seminarian, um, you know, he was able to learn the value of hard work for sure, um, but also encounter others who he would have never had access to, um, which is really, really where that principle of friendship comes into play, that actually work becomes in and of itself, you know, ideally a place of community as well, where we can then you know, access people that, let's say, the institutional church would never have access to, and to engage that apostolate of friendship even in the midst of our work. Um, I think the, the problem is, especially for you know, uh, personalities like mine, Sometimes we just too closely identify ourselves with our work. It becomes our identity, and we quickly, you know, sort of devolve into to workaholism. And I have struggled with that at many points in my life. And and leisure is, of course, the antidote to that. Um, but again, leisure it, it kind of trumps work in the sense that you know the highest form of leisure is the worship of Almighty God. You know, what what is heaven but this profound communal leisure? What we might call festivity. Uh, where all of us are sort of caught up in the love of God and, and, and the sober inebriation and, you know, just endless joy uh, that comes with that. Uh, life is meant to be a glimpse of what's to come. And as you reminded us earlier, even every encounter with beauty is meant to be a foretaste of heaven. Well, leisure is a way of intentionally cultivating or conditioning our soul to encounter beauty. To, of course, encounter the other transcendentals like truth and goodness as well. It's a, it's a stillness and a certain rest of soul, um, sort of a, a posture of, of receptivity, in fact, uh, that I would say almost all the other principles depend on. I, I could have put leisure at the very beginning of the book. I decided to hang on to it until I could put it next to work, knowing that there would be, for many of us, an interplay there, a tension there that we really got to fight for. Uh, because I think uh, leisure is not something that many of us get right, and we sort of associate it with loafing, with laziness, uh, but it's actually much more about this intentional posture of soul that is constantly um, you know, preparing us to encounter uh, truth, beauty, and goodness in, in all their forms, even in our most ordinary of circumstances. Yeah, and you know, I think you, you, you make the point uh, that you know, even leisure is still activity, you know, I mean, it isn't, again, so we're not, we're not working so that we can do nothing. Um, I mean, even our heavenly goal, right, isn't doing nothing. It is, it is, as you, as you so eloquently said, I mean, it's leisure, but it's active. We're praising, we're glorifying, right? We're, I mean, working in a manner of speaking, but it is, it is uh, uh, of the best variety, right? And you say here, I love this line that, that uh, I had never seen something put quite like this before. You wrote, our world is plagued by activism and sloth, which are two sides of the same vicious coin of acedia. I wonder if you could say just, just um, I don't want to dwell on the work and leisure too much longer, but just what, maybe you could flesh that out just a little bit and maybe tell us what acedia is, if, if there are any listeners who aren't familiar with that term. Yeah, acedia is one of these seven deadly sins. We often just uh, simply uh, translate it, you know, into you know, sloth. We sort of hold those up as Synonyms and that and that's helpful, but sometimes sloth just looks and sounds like laziness to most of us. And, and acedia, uh, it basically uh, has two extremes, and it's either this kind of sloth and, and laziness, or this activism and, and busyness at the other end of the spectrum. And so, what's pretty powerful about leisure is it kind of bucks up on sloth, so that we don't, you know, on on one end let our whole lives become about work and achievement and accomplishment and, and doing, doing, doing. 
uh, nor does it, you know, sort of allow our lives to, to devolve into to laziness uh, where there's very little purpose, very little intentionality in our, in our day-to-day. Uh, but the point of acedia is that ultimately it, it is this sort of hatred of the interior life or this disdain for the, the spiritual life. And uh, again, there's no greater sort of uh, precursor to a profound spiritual life than a, a posture of leisure. Um, and there's also, you know, again, sort of um, a struggle that many of us have at various points in our lives with, with laziness or what we traditionally call sloth on one end or this kind of workaholism uh, and activism on the other. And again, acedia keeps us in this really healthy, integrated uh, middle ground, which is where all virtue is. It's, it's always in the middle. Yeah, I thought that was really helpful. Um, for the sake of time, I don't think we'll delve into community. Uh, it connects up really nicely with friendship, but I do want listeners to know that there is a, an absolutely riveting story at the beginning of that chapter about a young man almost getting stuck in a cave. So I will, that really had me on the edge of my seat. So I will just leave it to our, our <laughs> listeners to go out and, and enjoy that, that great story for themselves. But um, on that, but on that lighthearted note, Jimmy, I want to I want to transition to your chapter about suffering because it, it was there where I really felt like I got to know you as a, as the author, as you were really like, um, you know, really really bearing some scars to 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 us, your audience, where you tell the the very moving story about the death of your brother. Um, you go into a lot of really interesting stuff in in that chapter. So I wonder if I could just just pitch it back to you to just tell us about the beauty of suffering. Mm. It's funny because I had heard and even read or studied, you know, the, the church's teachings on redemptive suffering when I was in college. And it was actually Pope Benedict XVI encyclical, Space Salvi, that really opened my mind to the great value of suffering. That, you know, in of itself, suffering is ugly and it's painful. We can all agree with that. But actually, the fruits of it are, are powerful. They're redemptive. They're even beautiful. And in Space Salvi, Benedict describes suffering as the great school for hope, the way of really learning how to hope for eternal things, to allow our souls to be stretched, to, to desire more than what this world has to offer. I mean, suffering actually has a powerful way of reminding us that we're not home yet, that heaven is our home. Uh, so with that in mind, you know, um, I went you know, to seminary right out of college and uh, discerned out of seminary in my mid-20s, not long after my parents got divorced and only uh, a little while before my brother died in his sleep. So while I was studying suffering and and the power of redemptive suffering, um, I hadn't really experienced it in an intense way until several years later. And it was in the midst of my um, family's grieving the loss of my brother and, and the tragedy that that was that I just hung on to the, to the hope and, and hung on and, and really clung to the Lord and, and the truth um, that the church holds out, you know, by way of redemptive suffering. And, you know, a good seven months after my brother passed away, I had this very powerful experience in adoration that brought tremendous healing to my soul. And with that healing uh, came this profound calling, actually. Um, and it's when I began to see, you know, joy come out of the suffering. And I began to connect the dots with our Lord's Paschal mystery that, of course, it's actually only possible that joy can come out of suffering because the resurrection follows the cross. And again, you know, um, to, to borrow the you know, phrase of a saint, uh, Jose Maria Escriva, uh, he's coming up a lot today. Uh, he says, you know, the, the, the gate or I should say the, the, the way to heaven is, is narrow um, and, and it's in the shape of a cross. And I think a lot of us love the idea of, of being a resurrection people, of living in the joy of our salvation. But we forget that, you know, uh, where, the, where the head first went, meaning Christ himself, so too must the church follow. So the only way to our resurrection uh, is, in fact, to go through our own passion and death. And, and the whole of the spiritual life is ultimately a dying to ourselves so that Christ can live within us. Every experience of suffering uh, and even death around us. Uh, I think is a is a signpost to that beautiful truth that sets all of us free. Jimmy, there's something that um, that the the, the Anglican uh, New Testament scholar and bishop N. T. Wright has talked about in recent years. He he believes that whereas in St. Paul's time or Jesus's time, the the New Testament era, the default philosophy was Stoicism, which was good a good seedbed for the gospel actually. 
he says now the default philosophy is Epicureanism, which is, you know, a lot of people understand kind of the caricature of Epicureanism, which is like a pleasure-seeking, hedonistic sort of lifestyle. But at the heart of the real philosophy of Epicureanism is that there is no such thing as redemptive suffering, that mm. suffering does not redeem. I mean, it's essentially the exact opposite philosophy as, as what we espouse as Christians. And ever since I heard him say that, I've just sort of seen the world in a different, through different lenses where we're really up against a culture, and maybe we'll get now into the culture part that where you end the book, but a culture that you're really pushing a rock up a hill to tell people that suffering is redemptive um, in the abstract. And yet, you know, when you tell your story about your brother's death and your way through that, I think that is a story that resonates with just about everybody because everybody has had some kind of loss, right? Even if people are out there in the world trying to avoid pain at all costs and not looking to suffer for anything, it's going to happen. And most people have some kind of story to tell, don't they, of some way that they have grown as a person, that they have sort of gained new insight. Or, I mean, if they don't even have the language of faith, there's something that they can say that they can point to as something like redemptive suffering. Would you agree with that? No doubt. There's no doubt. And I think there's a ton of hope um, and, and a ton of dignity and, and purpose found in the church's teachings um, about redemptive suffering. And it explains, you know, so much of N.T. Wright's insight into our modern culture explains the, the, the despair, the nihilism, uh, the misery, you know, the you know, uptick uh, in depression rates and suicide rates and the meltdown of uh, family life. It was a recent, you know, actually a Wall Street Journal poll that, you know, just in the last three years, the percentages of, of people who feel connected to their family, connected to our country, connected to their religion, I think was the word that the poll used. Uh, it's almost half what it was even three years ago before the pandemic. And there's been nothing but a, a steady decline for the last 30 years. So there's this profound sense of loneliness on the rise. And people really have no idea um, how uh, beautiful it is to belong ultimately to the Lord. Uh, and by extension, you know, the, the, the church here on earth, which is really just meant to be, uh, a, a, again, a glimpse of, of heaven, a glimpse of uh, the, the kingdom that awaits us, which really does bring us to that final principle. What, what does it mean to uh, build a Christian culture? Uh, well, Christ needs to be the integrating principle of that culture, which means he has to be the integrating principle of our lives. And I find myself often reflecting on uh, some words that Cardinal Seurat shared not long after the burning of Notre Dame back in 2019, the great cathedral in Paris. And he said there was nothing more uh, heartbreaking for him than when he saw the spire of Notre Dame fall. And he said, you know, the spire of every church, uh, it points to God. And really, the, the, the role of Christians as salt, light, and leaven on earth is to point the world to God. Our, our lives are meant to be a, a, a spiral, um, you know, um, a spire, I mean, pointing to heaven, reminding people that they're not home yet. Uh, and everywhere that that has ever happened, you know, you begin to see uh, the beauty and the fruits of Christian culture really thrive. And, you know, whether it's sort of institutionally in the kind of culture that we want to build in parishes and schools and Catholic universities and apostolates, uh, even publishing houses like Ignatius, uh, or we really want to maybe engage with sort of the larger culture of uh, the, the town or city in which we live or the country in which we um, you know, find ourselves. Um, culture is so powerful. And if we try to uh, evangelize people around us, but have no community or culture to bring them into, uh, it seems to very rarely last. I've had many friends who have had powerful conversions, but they've never really been swept up in community or, or culture, uh, community short-term and culture long-term. And it's very, very easy to lose uh, our faith, especially when we're isolated. So that's the great power of, of culture and, and community around us. Yeah. And here too, you know, just briefly, you know, this is maybe where the aesthetic part can kind of come, come back in where I think in, in your other, your other points, a lot of those are things that we can sort of be thinking about working on individually with our friends, with our family or whatever. But like that, your last chapter where you talk about culture and you quote Pope Benedict XVI and some of his reflections on Europe and, and tradition and that sort of thing. I think an important thing to remember is that 
it isn't it isn't just bald nostalgia or sort of wishing for something that that isn't anymore you know our history is a part of our present and you know like when you go to to, to Europe and see the great cathedrals those things should inspire you to seek to build a better Christian culture back where you live or whatever, you know? So I really appreciated that. Um, very last thing related to this though, you use this word super tide at the end. You say, we're living through a super tide moment in history with all the brokenness of our post-Christian culture on full display. Maybe just right here at the end, Jimmy, just quickly, what does that mean? Where, where do we go from here? A friend of mine shared that image about three years ago. And I think once I moved to Florida and was surrounded by water on all sides, I, I began to really think more about this image. And a super tide is basically, you know, uh, re referring to this moment where the water has gone far, 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 far out. And suddenly you can see the shoreline uh, with all of its debris, uh, with all of its mess. Uh, you can kind of see what was beneath uh, the, the, the beautiful water that is typically, you know, even at low tide covering up so much of that mess. But again, a super tide is a super low tide that eventually comes crashing in. Um, and, you know, the question is, uh, if, if we're really living in this moment that I think we're living in, which is one where the culture is failing us and increasingly being exposed for what it is, you know, from uh, the kind of uh, transgender ideology that has just come to the forefront in the last several years, uh, obviously to, you know, the uh, fight for life that we've been in for 40 or 50 years and everything in between. Uh, it's become very clear that this is a dying culture. It's a non-sustainable culture. Uh, who's going to catch this, especially next generation, as the, as the tide comes crashing back in? And I hope to God it's the church, because I see, especially in Gen Z, so we'll say, you know, young people who are in their, their especially young 20s, mid-20s and younger they're so open to the gospel. They've never heard it before. They're so open to faith. They don't even know what it is. And yet it is obviously the fulfillment of all human desire, this relationship with Christ as it has been handed down by Holy Mother Church for these last 2,000 years. So in this super tide moment, who's going to stand in the gap? Who's going to step into the breach? I hope it's us, and I hope it's an army of aspiring saints who are ready to um, you know, inspire an entire generation uh, to follow in our footsteps, to storm heaven, and to become saints together. Amen to that. The book is Let Beauty Speak, The Art of Being Human in a Culture of Noise, available everywhere from Ignatius Press. Jimmy Mitchell, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at ignatius.com. Follow us on social media and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprint. God bless.